out live from Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. And hello out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics from Studio A in Podcast Village in Upper Georgetown in Washington, D.C. I am your host and moderator Justin Russell. Joining me as they do every episode Here in studio with me, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He is the one that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Uh, From the Sunshine State in Florida, otherwise known as God's Waiting Room, he is the one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is Admiral Ken Carradine. Hello from the back of the waiting line. And also from the city, so nice that he named it twice in the Big Apple, New York City, is our favorite Sharmila Achari. Sharmila, how are you? Happy 2019. Hi, Justin. Welcome Happy back. New Year, everyone. We missed Thank you. you. Missed you all. Well, we we have uh, a, a lot to talk about. I mean, in, in the previous, in our first episode... Of 2019, we talked about the government shutdown. We talked about the uh, Sharmila, the 59 candidates that apparently are running for president under the Democratic ticket, which we'll probably touch on that since you're our resident Democrat political operative right now until Dan shows up. Hopefully, Dan Lipner Esquire will show up here in this show today. Uh, But we. We want to talk about one of the big things that happened uh, in late December between us going on break and us returning uh, here in early January. One of the big things, one of the big notices that came out, which caught everybody off guard, including uh, Secretary Mattis, which we're going to talk about him too, but... Uh, caught everybody off guard was the surprise announcement that the president was, A, going to pull out of Syria, an unexpected announcement that caught everybody in, in the defense sector off guard and a lot of our allies. Uh, B, he was going to use additional military resources and possibly declare a state of emergency to use said military resources down on the border. And C, we also learned of the apparent troubled resignation of Defense Secretary Jim Mattis which, again, caught a lot of people by surprise, and the way it went down caught everybody even more by surprise. Let's start with Jim Mattis. Um, Admiral Ken, uh, Jim Mattis was largely seen as the last adult in the room. He was the last guardrail. He was the last one to really uh, have any semblance of reality going through as it came to our defense and international strategies. Is the depart how big of a deal is the departure of General Mattis as Secretary of Defense and why should we be concerned? Well, I, I think you just I think you just stated um a, a good number of reasons why I think most people who are not comfortable with uh, President Trump's um uh, foreign policy um uh, leadership so far um, would uh, would probably cite um, 
you know, uh, Secretary Mattis was the first uh, journal officer in, uh, you know, maybe a generation uh, to serve in the presidential cabinet um, uh, as a primary, especially in the secretary, as the secretary of defense. Um, and for those of us who, who wore the uniform, um, you know, for a career, uh, we, we liked having somebody like Mattis um, uh, on, on the team because finally, uh, you know, it was the thing that Spotty at the top uh, truly understood what it was like for those for those of us in uniform and even those from the bot from at the top all the way down to the bottom. So it, it was a good thing. So you know, I, I feel a number of questions in the last uh, you know last few weeks or so about this. And one thing you know, I think needs to be said that you know general officers um, typically are serving as policy makers uh, uh, in, in their respective roles and um, uh, Secretary Mattis um, you know may have been the defense secretary but you know I think at his core he was a Marine Corps officer and I don't think he ever forgot that um, how big of a deal is it well you know if the president wanted a secretary of defense that would do his bidding without question, regardless of what that was, then Jim Mattis was definitely not that guy. If the president's thinking that he's going to get somebody like that, then I think we should all be troubled. We should all be really worried about that. Uh, I have to believe that Secretary Mattis had a real problem with putting troops on the border, uh, down um, uh, on the Mexican border, because quite frankly, that's, in my opinion, a manufactured crisis. I know you know, that most of the military leadership had a problem with withdraw with withdrawing from Syria, because the job's not done, job's not done. All right. One and, more time. And the we'll, job's we'll, not done. And we'll and we'll and we'll get that for in, here in a second. Sharmila, the the resignation letter drew a lot of ire, uh, only due to the fact that traditionally, when you get somebody who is honored to serve as a cabinet level secretary in an administration of a president. It usually has words like, I was honored to serve you and your administration, and they sign letters like, respectfully yours, or very respectfully, or your humbled servant. Uh, none of those words appeared. He made it a point to say it was an honor to serve with the troops, to serve as part of the organization of the Department of Defense, not once crediting Trump for anything, and basically signed it at the end, just kind of said, yeah, peace out, Jim Mattis. It, 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 are we reading too much into that, or in fact, was it a statement? Well, I think that we're reading too much into, I mean, look, I'm sure that the omission of those elements was deliberate, right? I mean, Secretary Mattis is a man who's, you know, studied military history, who's known other secretaries of defense, who's, you know, been in the military for a long time. He knows how to conduct himself respectfully. So I am sure that the omission was not accidental. I'm sure there was a meaning behind it. But I think the parts of the letter that we should really be focusing on and that I think the media rightly focused on were was the paragraph that says, you know, you have a right to a secretary of defense whose views are better aligned with you because I don't agree with your stances on who our allies and our adversaries are. I don't agree with you on treating our allies respectfully. I don't agree with you in your worldview on the United States' place, you know, in the world. 
those, I think, are the more important elements to take away from Secretary Mattis's uh, resignation letter. And I think you see that, you know, in the difficulty that the president and the White House are now having in actually finding a successor to General Mattis, you see that most top military leaders share, even those who identify as Republicans, share the same view as General Mattis about not just about the U.S.'s place in the U.S., in the kind of in the world military order, but also about President Trump's leadership style. And none of them want to, you know, jump into that quicksand. Alan Moore? So General Mattis' influence on the president had been on the decline for at least six months, probably longer. He was spending less and less time with the president. He had less and less influence on the president and his decisions. The president was becoming more comfortable God forbid, frightening as that is, with 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 what was going on and 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 his own instincts, and then he had John Bolton, who was nearby and who could communicate with him as well as Secretary of State Pompeo, a um, couple of people who uh, who he could trust, listen to, and 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 op- and work with, and and Mattis's influence was on the decline. Syria was the final straw, although as as Ken accurately pointed out, uh, putting troops on the border had to test. Uh, Mattis's uh, staying power uh, because it was it was uh, such a grotesque decision. So contrary to to what we all believe, uh, Secretary Mattis's views were. So along comes Syria. We're going to get out of Syria. We won in Syria. Um, we're destroyed leaving. ISIS. We're, uh, uh, ISIS is ISIS. gone, and we'll we'll have people out of there in thirty days. Right. That was the final straw. We we have this huge irony now that. We know that that is no longer our position. John Bolton and Secretary of State Pompeo are now overseas trying to reassure our allies, hey, actually, we're not leaving Syria right now. We're not going to leave until we know ISIS truly is finished. And we know that our Kurdish allies in the north who were so critical uh, to our efforts there will not be attacked by the Turkish government. Bolton went to Turkey to meet with uh, with President Erdogan, who today, earlier today, declined to meet with him and is furious that the president has reneged right. on the very clear and, agreement and that we'll they get- had. So the, the, the cra- there's a crazy part of this. Even though I think Mattis was fed up and kind of ready to go, right. Syria pushed him out. If we were a month ago... Where we are today on Syria, Mattis would still be there. However, he would still be having lesser and lesser influence. In terms of his letter, I don't agree with the way that Mattis wrote and delivered the letter. Really? I think that, Really? Absolutely. I think that, that if he wanted to communicate that privately, fine. Send the letter to the president wow. and let the word know that, that, that Mattis— um, was leaving because remember Mattis wasn't leaving this Friday. He wasn't leaving next week. He was leaving at the end of February to give room for a Wait, a, I, a, a transition. Go back to but, go back to your statement of what about the letter bothered you? Well, it's not it's as you said and 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 as most people understand, usually when you when you write a letter of resignation that's public and timely and, and, and timely it's Thanks for letting me serve. I'm done here. The, the Mattis letter, which is really important content, 
was clearly intended to be provocative and critical of the president. No. Putting, hold putting on, hold the, on, hold putting, on, Ken. Hold on. Putting the president in a, in a position, I think, that that was intolerable for him. Once people explained to him what was in the letter, so he he really had very little choice but to speed up the timetable. Right. He was ingracious in the way he did it. I don't agree with, with, with anything, but I think that Mattis could have communicated that in a different way at a different time um, that would have been less provocative. Admiral Ken, you disagree. So I want everybody to go back a few months to that extremely queer uh, meeting of the cabinet in the White House where every, per- every person in the president's cabinet went around the table, oh, Mr. President, you're wonderful, you're great, I'm so glad you gave me the opportunity to serve you, so forth, blah, 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 blah. If you go back and you look at that tape, and you can do it on YouTube or, or a number of other news sources, Jim Mattis, Jim Mattis basically said, you know, Mr. President, thank you for allowing me to serve the country. And so I think that letter basically was, was designed to do exactly what it did, was to basically put everybody on notice, the fact that things are not good at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and that uh, we, we have policy being made out of those little mystery, um, little, little eight balls that you can buy in a toy store. Should I do this or should I do not? Uh, should I not do this? That's tantamount to what he did. Don't have a problem with it. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't have a problem with it. I think it was great. Awesome. Here's, here's my... Here's my take on this, because I, I tend to lean towards uh, Admiral Ken, is there is a there is a certain respect that is due a four-star Marine Corps general. There is a heightened certain level of respect given somebody who has served 30 years in the military and in government, you know, as, as, a, as a public servant. Uh, I go one step further and say there's an inherent honor to the Secretary of Defense. Those factors, I think, are foreign to the current president and commander-in-chief. And I think that it got to the point where POTUS was making uneducated decisions on situations that he had no in-depth knowledge was not reading up on and was not listening to the people who were in the know. And when he started going outside and making decisions that were contrary to the best interests of the Department of Defense, the members of the military, and our national security is when he said, you know what, if you are going to do this, and not even cons- and not even respect me with consulting me why do i have to- i'm going to show the world in a way that does not violate my obligation as an officer and a gentleman but i'm going to state on paper how i really feel and i want them to read between the lines and they will read between the lines and they will see how bad a situation it is so and again the- and again uh the Secretary of Defense, as do all of the cabinet members, they don't serve the president. They serve the Constitution. And General Mattis was basically saying, this guy is not doing that. He's serving, he's serving himself. And I'm not going to be a part of it. Right. Well, so, look, I agree completely with the content of the letter. I disagree with the way it was done. 
That's all. That was it's, a mic drop. And, and, it was a mic drop. Well, and, and he wants to be around for another two and a half months. That's the problem. I mean, Ken, that meeting you were talking about was a year and a half ago. It was early in this right. administration. And we all thought it was brilliant at the time, the way Mattis simply said, I am honored, Mr. President, to represent the people of the Department of Defense and to work with them. And it, and, and it was very understated. And it was a way to get around it. What he could have done with this letter in a letter that went public is simply say, um, thank you for letting me serve. I think it's time for me to step aside and for you to be able to find a secretary. That's kowtowing. Who, who's, He's kowtowing. It is not kowtowing. It is absolutely kowtowing. Oh, come on. And let me friggin' finish <laughs> to say that, that, that I'm stepping aside so that you can have a secretary who, who – views are aligned with your own then in a private message or once he leaves he can say the rest the moment he puts it out in a public letter wasn't reading between the lines it was all out there we all agree with the content but when you are a guy working for somebody else for another two and a half months you put that senior person in an untenable position we got to be careful none of us like this president we're constantly critical but I think we we owe it to try to at least be reflective of the entire picture. And every now and then, if a president is for for the for the problems he's created, the trap he's created, the corner he's painted himself into, there are I can't think of a president who would have kept on a secretary of anything for two and a half months who was so obviously directly critical of that president. So. But wait, he resigns. You know, that, that, you know what that proves? That proves the going word going around D.C. is that Donald Trump actually did not read the letter. Oh, I don't think when he first saw it or read it, he understood it. He didn't it. read it. He, other, he didn't read he it. He had everybody else pointing it out, then he reread it and stuff. No, no, I think that was probably true. It was other or people who— Or CNN pointed out to him. Yes, yes. You know, I was like, "Hey, dude, look at this letter. Look what he said." I mean, if 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 Mattis wanted to write that kind of letter, it should have been said, "I will leave now. I will leave at the, at the earliest opportunity, not two and a half months from now. I'm going to trash you, tell you you're full of crap, and let me hang around for another." That, he did not do he that. Did he do did that. not That's do exactly that. That's exactly what's no, in that letter. No, no, that is. Oh not my sad. God! Oh, Are you kidding me, Alan? And he was right. Mattis was right. But there was nothing subtle. There was no reading between the lines. On the line with us uh, is uh, Dan Littner Esquire. Daniel, happy 2019 to you. And happy 2019 to you as well. And and by the way, Mazel on your on your on your great news, your personal news. Yes. We're, we're all very pleased for you. Very yes. happy. For those who don't know, uh, he's uh, he's getting married or are married. Are you married yet? Yeah. No? Uh, we, we, we are domestic. We are domestic partners at the moment, and we are getting married eventually. But the kid is due the first week of February. Oh, I wasn't even going to talk about the kid, but muzzle on the child too. Wait, right. wait, wait, wait! First week of February. Yeah, you've been, you've been holding out on us, uh, my friend. But oh, you, uh, you, you didn't get the memo. I got the memo. First, I got the memo. I got the, the invite first, to the Facebook. The first of February <laughs> memo. Yeah, that's less than a month away. Yeah, I got that's it. what I'm talking about. <laughs> I haven't submitted candidate names. I got the yeah, memo. yeah. I don't know what happened to you. Sure, I mean, I, 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 I've I've been 
busy stocking my fallout shelter since there's an emergency coming, and so i got to make sure I'm ready for it. Dan Littner, let's get back to subject. Uh, do you agree with Do you agree with Alan Moore that uh, his letter was kind of a smack in the face to the executive? It was a smack in the face of the executive. And while I agree with Alan in the premise of any normal situation, uh, everything about this president is not normal. Uh, and this presidency is problematic. So Secretary Mattis's departure, and I can even agree with the statement about the on both fronts, the, the sticking around for two months, uh, if for no other reason than trying to have an orderly transition to the next Secretary of Defense. Um, that's a thing, but also needing to make it public in such a way that it would be noticed that what this president is doing is challenging uh, for the people that work with him and downright irresponsible for our country's national security interests. And if you're going to do that, there, this seemed to be the best way of getting it, getting that notice taken. If he had done it in any other way, it would have been seen as a sour grapes three months later, as opposed to doing it while you're still in office, in which case it landed like a bomb, including with all the people and Republicans that support Mattis, a guy who was who was confirmed, I believe, 99 to one uh, with uh, with uh, the uh, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand being the only uh, vote against him. And even then, she said it was only because uh, the exception for uh, that was made for him as Secretary of Defense after being an active duty service member. Right, right. So it, it, the, it, he he did it for a reason, and I, if it were any other president, I I would probably agree with Alan. But these are extraordinary circumstances, uh, necessitating extraordinary actions. And, Amen, my Democratic brother. <laughs> Sharma, the the president immediately announced that he was going to have a acting. Uh, Secretary of Defense and the who is now the de- or who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense is now the acting SecDef uh, Patrick Shanahan. Uh, Patrick Shanahan is being criticized for being one a former executive with Boeing, uh, having no military service record, not having any international affairs uh, experience to speak of. But do we have – should we be concerned that Shanahan is the acting Secretary of Defense or uh, are we giving him too little credit? I mean the guy was the CEO of – or a, a senior executive rather of a large global defense contractor in Boeing. Well, I think first we should be thanking our lucky stars that the president nominated someone who actually had been confirmed by the Senate. Granted, not for the job that he's currently doing, but it's something. So, you know, I'm a glass half full type of gal. Um, and look, I think, you know, historically, the Secretary of Defense has always been filled by a civilian. So, again, you know, Pre- President Trump broke tradition by having a active military well, general. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's be fair. Let's be fair to General Mattis. When General Mattis was sworn in as Secretary of Defense, he, in fact, was a civilian. That is never we have never had a military officer as the secretary of defense that would violate so many laws. 
General Mattis, when he took office, was in fact a civilian. He just didn't go through the full one-year radioactive period between end of service and his swearing in, which is traditionally the case. Fine. Fair yeah. enough. Okay. Uh, at, most most secretaries, last, most secretaries actually, have had— one year. I think it's seven years. Well, uh, I, is it seven years? I don't know about that, but most secretaries have had some kind of military service. Having said right. that, this guy had worked for many years at Boeing, and for two years he'd been the dep- deputy secretary. Presumably right. he was paying attention right. and learning on the he job. Had, yes, exactly. Well, that's a big assumption. Hold on, hold on. Charmler first. That's a big assumption. Charmler first, then Dan. You're too kind, Dan, too kind. Again, Charmler first, then Dan. Charmler. Look, I was going to say that, you know, Secretary, Acting Secretary Shanahan doesn't have zero experience. You know, to Alan's point, he was the deputy, secre- deputy secretary for two years under Secretary Mattis. Presumably he learned something. Um, and I think right now it's too early to tell whether or not I think, and again, I, I, I think the question isn't should we should we be worried that Secretary that that Patrick Shanahan is serving in this capacity? He's obviously you know someone who's been confirmed by the Senate, has significant experience, maybe not as a member of the military, but having been around the military, worked around the military, and having worked in the Department of Defense. But I think the bigger question we need to be looking at is should we be worried about the fact that the president relies on so many acting, you know, cabinet secretaries right now? And should we be more worried about the fact that the president is not able anymore to recruit top tier talent to serve in his cabinet? Those are the real questions that we need to be worried about. I mean, Sharma brings up a very valid point, but, but actually I want to get Ken's take on the situation with Patrick Shanahan. Does Patrick Shanahan give the senior flag officers inside the component services reason to, to uh, be concerned? Admiral Ken? Well, I, I won't speak for all of them, but I'll, I'll speak for this one. And honestly, I'm, 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 less, I'm less worried uh, about him than I think I might be uh, other people that the president could have put into the role, okay. uh, even temporarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm. Uh, I, I would say the, the thing about him that that brings me some 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 challenges. One, um, you know, the president um, has set the example uh, of, of of using his office to basically, you know, um, fill Linus Linus pockets. That that concerns me. I don't know whether that's going to be an example that this person will follow or not follow, uh, because he's kind of made it okay to do that. The thing that brings me. Um, some comfort in it. Again, he's been acting. He's been uh, deputy secretary of defense for um, for about two years. Uh, and I will tell you, based on my experience in the Pentagon, um, bringing some 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 corporate um, uh, views as to how business the business side of running the DoD is done, not a bad thing. I think it kind of needs it. And I, I'm hoping that he, you know, in the time that he's there, can put some of those initiatives in place. Right. Oh. We'll see. All right. Uh, Charmler brought up a really good point. Charmler, you, you stated that you were concerned about the people that the president is putting there and even acting roles or even nominating up. Uh, I take it that you're also concerned about uh, Heather, Heather Nauert, who has been nominated to be the next uh, U.N. ambassador. I take it that that, that troubles you. Yes. I mean, I think that's a that's a 
better example of a more problematic uh, nomination, right? The president took someone with zero diplomatic experience other than serving as a communications you know, representative for the State Department and suddenly plunked them into one of the most high-profile diplomatic posts that our government offers, right? Something that was held by, you know, formerly by Samantha Power and Nikki Haley and is now, you know, again, a woman who does not have the same caliber of experience as either of those two individuals. So these are the, so, right, it's not only that he's making troubling nominations, but it's also, I think we also need to focus on the fact that, you know, that top tier candidates who would be the most qualified to fill a lot of these positions, especially Secretary of Defense, are not interested in the position. And why is that? It's because they see what type of leader the president is. They see that they see a commander in chief who won't take their counsel, who, you know, relies on his own gut instincts, no matter how factually incorrect they are, and who will undercut them at the first possible opportunity when he doesn't like the policies that they're advocating. What sane, qualified person would ever want to go into an environment like that? Are you are you suggesting, Sharma, that he's putting a almost a puppet regime cabinet together that it's going to be they're going to be lockstep with him, which he's the president. He can take that advantage if he wants. Puppet regime you, you, you requires see that? a skilled puppeteer. That is true. Thank you, Dan. But you you see that with Matt Whitaker, right? And you see now the growing outcry from the public and from the Senate that they want. They want a real nominee who they can confirm. I think senators also, you know, they were willing to indulge him briefly, you know, after after Jeff Sessions resigned. But now they, I think that they are also growing resentful that their power is being usurped, right? The president appoints nominees to his cabinet with the advice and consent of the Senate. And yet he's skipping that second part by installing all these acting deputies, right. some of which, such as Matt Whitaker, you see are more willing to go along with his nonsense, and some of which you know, perhaps, perhaps, you know, Acting Secretary Shanahan are less willing. And so, so I think this is, this is, again, what we need to be paying more attention to is how long can he keep circumventing some of the basic, you know, tenets of our Constitution? How long are the other branches of government going to stand for it? And how long are the American people going to stand for it? You know, I, I took some heat over the holiday when it, uh, the 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 Republican National Committee tweeted out, Alan, that uh, Heather Newart had plenty of experience. She had traveled with Secretary Pompeo. She had been the spokesperson at State Department for about a year and change. Uh, she was a journalist who had traveled the world. And I tweeted back to the RNC saying... That's like saying that because I have a job, I'm qualified to be Secretary of Labor, or I have a house, and I am qualified to be the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, which ironically, the president kind of made that choice. Is, are we being too hard on Heather Nauer, or is there an expectation of we expect people in these high-level positions representing the voice of the country to have experience? Well... <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure how helpful it is for us to, to, to get involved extensively on Heather and Howard, um, given, I think, the, the more important question of, of that Charmla's that, that raised and that we're addressing here of all these acting cabinet heads. But Heather Knauert, just for a moment, Heather Knauert, for a moment, I'll remind everybody what was being said about Nikki Haley. 
Nikki Haley had zero international experience beyond what one gets if you're a governor. She was a successful governor. That's not trivial. That's not nothing. That's not foreign affairs. That's domestic. And yet she went up there, did her homework, listened to the people, was disciplined, careful, cautious, and did a very good job. Now, I would argue, even though I'm, <laughs> I, I, I would wish we could do better than than Heather and Howard, um, as the spokesperson for the State Department on every issue that comes along, that is that is baptism by fire. That's full immersion. That's d- jumping into the deep end. You have to get briefed every single solitary day on every issue that the State Department's dealing with. That's genuine, legitimate experience and exposure. I'd rather if somebody had more than that, but that's more than Nikki Haley had, and we liked what Nikki Haley ended up doing. I don't want to have to take those risks. But before we just trash her, or for that matter, and I, I totally agree with Sharmila about the really uncomfortable problem of having a bunch of people serving as acting because we can't attract top-tier, experienced, confirmable people. I totally agree with that. Having said that, she shot a gratuitous shot um, at, at Whitaker about somebody who will just do the president's bidding. He's so nervous <laughs> to, to make any kind of decision because he is hoping to work again in this town and somewhere else. He's not going to get the top job. He's not going to be the lingering chief of staff. It's not the way to do it. He didn't. He was never confirmed by the Senate right. in, in this current role. But, That's a much bigger issue for me than, than taking the risk that, gosh, is he, is he going to be loyal? He was in the department. These people are all right. in the department. All right, we're going to take a quick Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, Dan. Hold on. We're going to take a quick two-minute break. We'll come back. We'll talk about this. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics. Stay with us. And I was downhearted. Just being friends would never do. And now we're reacquainted. And all the stars seem fresh painted. And here's what I long to say to you. What a tale you'd find If I could, I would Be bound forever And I'd never sever me from you You won't believe it's true But I've been missing you I dream of kissing you Let's give it one more chance One more slow dance Hello, 
live from Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. And we're back here with the best political talk show you've never heard of here in Studio A at Podcast Village in Upper Georgetown in your nation's capital, Washington, D.C. In studio with me is uh, Alan Moore. And behind the glass there, as always, Rob the Engineer. On the horn with us is Admiral Ken Carradine, Sharma Chari, and Dan Lipner. Let's continue on this, this discussion that we're having about some of the concerns that are kind of posing up regarding the uh, the, the past few weeks. Uh, as, you, as you all know, uh, we came back here in early January. We had a lot of stuff to covering, so we're kind of like, this is kind of version 2.0 of our first show of the year. Uh, Sharmila, let, let's talk a little bit about Wall Street. Uh, we had mentioned it a little bit on our first show back after hiatus, but wanted to get your take on what the feel is up there in uh, in New York in the financial district. We saw the worst December ever. We come back on January 2nd, and we literally hit six. You know, we dropped 500, come back six. Drop seven, come back five. What's the roller coaster feeling like right now? And should there be a concern that the market is overheated? Yeah, I think the general consensus is that people are preparing for an economic slowdown. You know, just I just saw a CNBC headline or Chiron that said, you know, the World Bank issues a warning to uh, be to look out for darkening skies. That you know, we've sort of we've reached we've reached growth levels that are around pre 2008 crisis, and you know, everyone is sort of gearing for a slowdown. Uh, also. People are, especially in the U.S., people are realizing that the government shutdown is causing some, you know, volatility and some instability because certain, you know, deals or transactions or economic activity that people were banking on, such as, you know, opportunity zone investing, is all now in limbo because of the shutdown and because nobody knows when the shutdown is going to end. So I think, yeah, the, the general consensus is that people don't fear a kind of massive crash the way that we had in 2008, but people are still very much preparing for a slowdown in the markets. Alan Moore, uh, is the stock market, you know, we've heard it's in correction, Terry. We're entering a bear market. Uh, the What exactly should we be concerned about? Is, in fact, the issue, the economy was going so well under Trump, which to his credit had a large winning streak going under his under his watch. Is there a concern that this economy is overheated and we're going to have to start making things right again? Well, I don't know about overheated. Uh, there was some, in, in Alan Greenspan's famous terms, uh, irrational exuberance in the stock market. We have had and continue to have a very strong economy. Can um, it be too strong, it, though? Well, it you know strong is is sort of this relative term, but but because we we've had the highest we had the highest economic growth in the last year than we've had since uh, since the recession. But it's not double. It it was up approaching four percent, 
at a time when we thought it would be maybe a little over 3%. Now, that's a lot, but it's not it, it's not some crazy number. It's not a sustainable number. But I'll remind everybody that that after all of the volatility in December, which was much more a factor of tariffs, uncertainty, higher interest rates, um, and the president's general unpredictability and nervousness, and then a whole host of problems in the tech sector um, that we can talk about or not talk about, where the where the Facebooks and Amazons and Apples of the world are facing different kinds of problems, but that's the whole darling of, of uh, parts of the economy that has fed the growth, but also when they decline, Facebook's down 38% from 38%, I'll repeat, from its high earlier in 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 mid-2018. Now, that's a massive, massive change. Um, And Apple is off uh, more than 20%. Um, People realize, gee, maybe everybody has has an iPhone and they're they're not all going to replace them every two years when they realize that the new one doesn't do that much more than the old one. So there are issues that were talked about. They came together. They created a highly volatile um, uh, and mostly down-trending December. But in the first in, in last week when we got the jobs report and it, and there were more jobs created than we thought, unemployment ticked up a little bit because more people came back into the market. In a day, the day after that, the market went up over seven hundred fifty points. Right. So it's a kind of a weird, crazy period. But the 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 bottom line is the economy continues to be very strong. It's coming down a little bit. There was a lot of catching up that that needed to occur. And just because the economy's strong doesn't mean that the that the stock market is going to ride at unrealistic highs. Sharmila, are we putting too are we putting too much emphasis on the health of the economy based on the stock market or is there a sensible correlation between the two? Well, I think Alan is probably more qualified to answer this question than I am, but I think that I do think yes and no. I think that yes, Alan is right that we we definitely need to look at other economic indicators, you know, unemployment being one of them and kind of, you know, what is purchasing power looking like, right? Can people purchase the same amount or more with a dollar, you know, today than they could yesterday? Um, but at the same time, I, I do think that you know, it, it's not so much the level of the stock market, but I think the volatility is what we should be worried about in when we look at our, you know, at our country's economic health. But I think that the volatility in the stock market is, you know, especially these days, very directly correlated to the volatility in our government. Um, right? You see, I think, you know, even it was a few days ago when Apple dropped so precipitously on the announcement of their earnings because they had, you know, lost so much share in China, which you can kind of directly tie to the president's trade policies. So I do think that you're seeing kind of much more clearly the impact of the dysfunction in our government and how that's translating into somewhat some dysfunction in our markets. Dan, 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 uh, Alan Moore is shaking his head here violently here. Yeah, in yeah. I, I don't think even Tim Cook would say would blame it on the president. Um, uh, the 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 problems that Apple has had in in uh, uh, is having in China. Um, it's a it's a largely saturated market, but more to the point, there are two Chinese companies that make copycat uh, Apple phones that. Uh, 
that do much the same thing, cost less than half the price. And and there has been some nationalism feelings, but also China, for all of its growth, its middle class and upper middle class is not nearly as wealthy as America. So for them, the 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 the, the difference between a five hundred dollar phone and a thousand dollar phone is huge. So it it's more a matter of the the Chinese market catching up with the world market. At the margin, some exacerbation of, of the the tension between the U.S. Uh, and and China, but I don't think that that's one you can lay on the president. Other than in the margins and creating some anger at at America and pride uh, in China. But as, as, but but as we've but also minute, said, we've we've, 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 also, we've, we've also, also seen. Hold on, Alan. We we've also seen not just Apple, not not blaming it on the president, but blaming it on the general tensions on trade that are occurring between the two nations uh not not just apple but we saw lower numbers out of gm we've seen lower numbers out of boeing we've seen lower numbers in in other sectors that cause us concern or the fact that it, the the trade tension, whether it's the trade war on tariffs, whether it's just the lack of progress in the current negotiations, it's still a factor. Look, I don't like the president's ignorance on how trade works. I don't like his ignorance on, on how he talks about trade deficits with individual countries. I hate what this president has done in his... Uh, rhetoric and efforts to change to modify policy with the EU, with Canada, with Mexico. Having said that, and I've said it on that show, the show many times, I do believe that we have had significant problems that work to our disadvantage between us and China. Right. Long overdue. We got some smart people working on them, not including the president, who doesn't really get it that well in my mind, but but some some folks. So there was bound to be some dislocations if we ever tackled China. Unfortunately, we did it more unilaterally than we should have, because there are a lot of other countries that, that are smaller versions of us vis-a-vis China. We had a chance to to create an, a global alliance to, to to try to deal with China. We we missed out on some of that opportunity, un, un, unfortunately. But it's not just because right. we shook things up with China, we, we we paid a price. God, why did we ever do that? It was way overdue to do that. Dan Lipner, as uh, one of the analysts on, I think it was BBC, called it the lump of coal December in the stock market, uh, as the lump of coal was occurring, President Trump came out and basically blamed a lot of this on the Federal Reserve and pretty much put a big target on the chairman of the Federal Reserve, his own pick, by the way. Uh, We've never seen a president call for the replacement of the Fed chair, which they can't do. And second of all... We don't think they can do. This is is actually... We hope they can't do it, but there's actually a real legal question about this. It's never been tested. What's the legal question? There's a, there's a real question. What's the legal question? So the question the, the question is, where does the Federal Reserve sit? Is it an executive branch agency? Is it a judicial branch? Is it legislative branch? Those are the only three we got. It's got to fit somewhere. So 
it is clearly in the executive branch, in which case it's under the purview of the president. There is an agreed ceasefire between the legislative and executive branches on how it will be handled. And it's a gentleman's agreement. Legally, under the Constitution, it is unclear that the president cannot fire the chairman of the Fed. So that's that's been largely an urban myth that has been running policy for the past, I don't know, 60 years? It's not an urban myth. It's been a, an agreement between the branches of government. It's wow. never been tested. I, I did not know that. Wow, you learn something new here on Backroom Politics every day. Uh, Charlotte, I mean, is is that... Is that something we actually want to see tested, or is that something that could spark another uncertainty in the markets and the economy and and be more hurtful than helpful? Again, I will defer to Alan on this, but my initial, my gut reaction is absolutely not. We do not want to see this proposal tested. I think, you know, the more that, you know, those of us in the finance world are spooked enough that the president is unloading on a Fed chair that he himself nominated less than, you know, I think less than a year ago. Right. Um, for him to then replace him because the chair is exercising his duty and acting independently of the White House and the White House's political wants, I think would be an extremely large shock to the market and would exacerbate massively that volatility that I was talking about earlier. Alan Moore? So I always get a little nervous when we talk about the president and they and we say this was his nominee, this was his candidate, whether it's for the executive branch, the Fed, uh, federal agencies, judges, and so on, because basically this president doesn't know know any of these people. He has to rely on the, the, the names that come forward to him, the people around him who say this is yeah, our, an this is our candidate. Right. And then he, right, has, but he presumably sits up. Presumably he interviewed sits, them at some point. Oh, this absolutely. Some low-level no, no. nominee or some, you know, one, no, 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 no. one no, no, federal no. judge appointment. No, no, no. All, hey, I remember saying he's bringing nothing but the best people. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we, he and, has and, the and, best people advising we, him to have the best and we know, And we know how that's all been working out. All I'm saying is it's not like they were big buddies and he knew him and he, he understood the role of the Fed and this was the right guy. The Fed chair, one of their jobs is to take flack from presidents when things go go, go a little bit haywire in, in the economy and you can blame the – he's somebody to blame who you ostensibly don't have any control over. Having said that, suppose you got a really crazy guy in there um, – and and you have to get rid of him. What do you do? You've you've do you have to impeach him, uh, which would be an option, or do you have a way for a president to exert executive authority? And it's you know as Dan usefully and helpfully points out, you know it's always been kind of an agreement. But 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 I'm imagine the circumstance where somebody. Um, really is a bit of a nutball um and you you have no power to get rid of him um arguably so the problem in this case the the president would rather have him there as a whipping boy somebody he can blame throw up his hands and say yeah i tried to figure out if there's a way to get rid of him and i can't god forbid he would test it but he could this president as we know um he might try to test it and then let's suppose the Fed chair just decides, I don't need this crap, and and he leaves. Then where are we? Then we're in a position where we're going to have another acting head, uh, and this president's got to come up with somebody else who who it's then known can be forced out and who has to get through Senate confirmation. 
again and again Actually, and again. In that case, right. I don't think I don't think I don't I don't think the Fed is the same thing though. It's not the same kind of government agency which the Constitution accounts for. No, no, no so I'm not. I don't it, think the president can appoint an an, an acting. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good question. There may be a statutory. There's there's got to be a statutory uh, uh, replacement simply because you know something can happen to the person who's the chair. And and it, fair point. I, I I don't know the answer to that either. But. But and the chair doesn't act alone. Doesn't and, the board of governors have some juice as well? No, that, right. That, that's right. And, and I think there's a I think there's a deputy who is who's probably statutorily moves in to take over if something happens to the chair uh, who can who can no longer serve. Um, it it, it 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 you know it's a sidebar uh, story and argument. There's no loyalty, obviously, to to of the president to to this. Uh, to the, to the chair. That was my only point before. He right. didn't he didn't know this guy. He but I also he, he's recommended. He sits down. They have a conversation. Sharma, go ahead. Sharma, go ahead. Fair enough. Well, I was gonna just to you know push back on Ellen a little bit. I also don't think we should normalize the level of sort of criticism and you know pushback that Donald Trump has levied on Jay Powell versus you know other Fed chairs and other presidents. Right. You know. Even if Janet, if Barack Obama was upset with, you know, didn't agree with Janet Yellen's policies or George W. Bush, you know, did not agree with Ben Bernanke's policies, they certainly didn't air their grievances with the Fed chair in the way that this well, president has. I mean, I mean, look, we've, we've seen the fact the only one who's been untouchable. Oh, Dan, Dan, hold on, hold on, hold on. The only one who's really been untouchable as, you know, as Fed chair was pretty much Alan Greenspan. I think everybody since Greenspan uh, has had a take at Bernanke. We, we, we heard some comments about Bernanke, uh, particularly in the 2008, 2009, even some public comments uh, during the, uh, the uh, uh, banking crisis. Oh, and we heard it with Yellen and Obama, and we're going to continue. This one just seems a little bit more, is the right word, flagrant? Alan, that we're seeing the attacks on the on the well, Fed chair. I, I, sure, in 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 response to Sharmila's point, this president, when he goes on the attack, goes on the attack in ways we've never ever seen in the in the history of the republic. It's personal. It's ugly. It's over the top. It's uninformed. My God, we would we would hate to normalize that. Right. Whether it deals with the head of the Fed, people who are in his administration, other folks he turns on, like poor old Jeff Sessions, um, people <laughs> in the Congress, um, uh, for that matter, people in Hollywood. You name it. He's gonna uh, he he's gonna he's gonna get ugly and nasty and personal, and then look around and say, "Wait, what? I just said what everybody always says, and he's my friend. She's my friend. Right. Nothing personal here." Ah. Uh. Because every everything everything is normal here in Washington these days. Hey, um, last couple of minutes of the show uh, before we take off here, Admiral Ken, the the, um, the the president has ordered more troops to the border uh, in support of building the barrier or enhancing border security. Are we getting dangerously close with the, and and now he's talking about starting you know claim or uh, declaring an emergency on the southern border to use those powers? Are we getting dangerously close here to a conflict with Posse Comitatus and Stafford Act? As I understand it, yes. Um, 
as I understand it, yes. Um, you know, I, I, I had a I had an occasion over the uh, the break uh, to talk with a uh, a young service person uh, who uh, was anticipating having to go down to the border, and this person was not okay with it. He thought it broke the law, and I says, well, I says, I said, so in truth, your 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 requirement is that you follow lawful orders, and um, and but I I would I would urge you to not not pull that lever on, on in this particular situation. There are things going on well above your pay grade that will, I think, get this into alignment uh, such that you don't have to go into personal risk. But on the second part of your question, with regard to the president declaring an emergency, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of hoping that uh, Congress uh, will step in and say, yeah, you know what, just because you can't get funding to do something you want to do, doesn't give you the ability to declare an emergency. Oh, by the way, uh, articles of impeachment are being filed uh, even as we speak. So um, I, I think I think this whole this whole situation, um, um, as I and I said this on LinkedIn, is an exercise in ego over morality, and um, and I'm 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 really kind of hopeful that uh, cooler heads heads will prevail. Although tonight's tonight's planned speech by the president does not portend uh, good things in the near term, I don't believe. Dan Lipner, uh, same question to you. I think the any declaration of emergency, which, by the, by the way, um, it's not clear what that means. Uh, if this president talking FEMA powers that the black helicopter set has been scared of uh, since its creation, that uh, no, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm very serious that that the, no, the, I, I'm the with you. FEMA, which 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 was there for in part, well, we, we know it principally for uh, natural disasters. In part, FEMA exists as, as as a as a as a preparation for a a, a nuclear disaster, um, meaning a nuclear attack. Now, that's a thing. In which case, which uh, you know, the, the the entire government is dismantled, and the and there needs to be somebody running things. That's not what we have right now. And worse yet, are we honestly thinking that this president, in declaring a national emergency, would simply be constrained by what has been created lawfully for FEMA to do? I don't think FEMA has the ability to build walls. So it's a real question. And taking it a step further and going with people that are paid to follow orders when there are lawful orders, that's great. Except what if there's a split opinion amongst a couple brigadier generals? Somebody's thinking that it is a lawful order and somebody thinking it's not, and people who have actual command over combat troops. This is a real thing, and uh-huh. it's pretty scary. It, I, I don't think anyone who's a flag officer would would buy into the nonsense, but I'm not willing to say that's a, car- a categorical truth. Admiral Ken? Uh, I have to agree with Dan on that. Um I think that um, these are for 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 drone flag officers. These are very very interesting times, and I would like to think that um, these these men and women are searching their soul as well as they're talking to their assigned JAG officer as to what uh, they are required to do, and if they choose to go a different path, what is the appropriate path in doing it? Uh, you know, I, I've only had to you know basically stand up to a commander um, trying to get me to do something illegal once in my career. And I was a very young junior officer when I did it. 
but you know I, I tread very very lightly on uh, on that ground, and it worked out in my favor. But boy, I tell you what, uh, these are these are difficult times, and um, I'm I'm really kind of hoping that uh, again, uh, these folks are really watching what they're doing, and they're listening, and they're talking to their jags, and they're they're paying very close attention to what's going on. Um, this is tough. This is really hard, and uh, and I, you know, I don't, I, I don't envy them in their positions right now at all. Right, right. Uh, I, I got to tell you something. Obviously, this is this is a subject that is going to continue to develop as is everything that we've dealt with. I still can't believe we were gone three weeks between these two episodes, and we still didn't cover everything that we possibly could have. We didn't talk about. Uh, the ongoing trade negotiations that are happening right now in Singapore. Uh, we don't. We didn't talk about um, a lot of things. Uh, what do we, uh, Dan Lipner? What did we miss over the holidays that we should have covered? Uh, Fox News actually began to call out the administration. Oh, that's one. Charmla, what did we miss while we were away? Well, I didn't hear the first half of the show, so I'm assuming we talked about the shutdown already. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was number one, of course. Um, gosh, I can't think of there was so much. anything right now. There was so much. Yeah, it's all, yeah. my mind went completely blank. Yeah. Uh, Admiral Ken? I think that we probably could have spent a little time talking about the... Um, um, Indonesia and uh, the tsunami in uh, the U.S.'s, uh, I think, paltry response this time around. But, Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's about it. Wow. Interesting. Uh, we are, well, again, it's a brand new year of shows, so we're going to have plenty of time to talk about a lot of this stuff. Uh, but that being said, I want to thank Admiral, uh, Admiral Ken, Sharmila Chari, Dan Lipner for uh, joining us remotely, uh, obviously. Alan Moore, as always. We can always, always thank our good friend, Rob the Engineer. Rob, thank you very much, as always. I always appreciate you. And it's always fun to have you chime in, too. So I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next time for the best political talk show you never heard of. I want to thank Charlie and Oscar here at Podcast Village as we broadcast from Studio A. You can follow us on Twitter at, at BackroomPolitik. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash BackroomPolitics. By the way, lots of interviews. We're scheduling interviews for the upcoming year. Uh, you're going to like some of these, I think. But we're getting back to our roots here at Backroom Politics. Some changes happening on the website, some things happening on social media. It's going to be a good year. Anyway, thanks for your support, everybody. Looking forward to a big 2019. I'm your host, Justin Russell. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.